Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Uh, we are starting a brand new series today. It's a new year, New Year's resolution. It's uh, great to see a bunch of people here. Uh, a series called This Time Around. It's a series on resolve. It's a series on resolve. We're going to talk about resolve for a couple of weeks. I think it's going to be about a four-part series. Uh, if at any point you miss, uh, the, the, you want to re-listen to this talk or uh, catch up on the, the rest of the series and you can't make it uh, in person or whatever, there's an app that you can download. Go to eastlaketricities.com. Information is on there to be able to follow along, as well as anything that's on the screen, verses and thoughts and whatever uh, can show up easily there. But um, it's funny, we talk about time uh, in a couple of different ways. We can say things like time is consistently moving forward or marching on and it waits for no one. Uh, we're always further away from something than we were a week ago or whatever. Um, and yet we also talk about time as in seasons, like there's a time for everything, there's a time, you know, seasons for, for whatever. The church has said when it comes to uh, Advent, we just got through a series called Advent. We just came out of an Advent series. We said that Christmas time, uh, during the Advent season, we are closer to the original Christmas than we would be in like, say, July or August, which you know, logically speaking is not true because we're further apart from it. But it is true that our attention and our focus is more on something during se- certain seasons of time. During that Advent season on anticipation, uh, on the arrival of Christ, on the return of Christ, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and with that in mind, uh, I wanted to do a series on resolve because it is during this season when you are most likely attuned to or or involved in or presently practicing some sort of a discipline uh, or some sort of a betterment thing or a lifestyle change or a New Year's resolution, or you just take an evaluation of your life and you're thinking, I got to do something different uh, now. And, and so time is, is ever moving forward, but it's also kind of cyclical uh, as well. It's another time around the sun, we would say. Um, and so I titled the series this time around because I want us to think in, in terms of, you know, if our attitude ebbs and flows between nothing ever changes and, and then everything's always changing, um, what, what, what's it going to be different for you this time around the sun? What's going to be different for you uh, this time around? And some of you have already kind of started the decision-making process for that. You've got some sort of a thing where you're working on it. It's like dry January. Uh, it's like, you know, gym time. Now I'm buckled down. It's, you'd call it buckle down January. And ironically, it's because your buckles aren't working correctly uh, that you do buckle down January. And I, I, I wondered if that joke would even work because like who wears buckles anymore, but it does, I guess, apparently. Uh, so appreciate that. Um, maybe it's like, you're finally, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to finally start using that stationary bike uh, that's been in our bedroom forever uh, and you know it never gets used. Or maybe it's like, now I, I want to start cleaning the house better, which is sort of interrelated to also using the stationary bike because all the clothes that used to hang off of the stationary bike are now on the floor. And so you got to like think about cleaning that up and, and, and doing that. Um, I'm mean, going to start eating better. I'm going to start maybe, um, maybe for some of you, it's I'm going to start fasting more. 
I'm gonna do some sort, of, and it's not even like a religiously motivated thing. It was just like, I'm gonna do intermittent fasting or I'm gonna fast from fast food because the, the names kind of rhyme uh, or I'm gonna fast from sort of technology at night. I'm gonna put my phone away a half hour before bed and I'm gonna read something and, and, or I'm gonna do a crossword or, a, or, or something to engage my mind or read fiction right before I go to bed to just inspire dreams instead of browsing on eBay. I think that this might be a better use of my time. We're always thinking about that, especially during the season on that. So I wanna kind of capitalize that and kind of do that uh, and, and follow through because in those seasons, we sort of like, you know, give it a go. And we see, we, we, we are inspired to be able to, to try something new, especially something that we've never done before. I was over at a, a friend's house the other night and him and I were playing a game and his wife was on the couch watching Chris Hemsworth do this Limitless show that if you haven't missed that, it's not a commercial for that, but, um, and he's pushing himself to kind of go take risks and, and walk across a, like a canyon on a rope deal. And then, and one of them was cold shower sort of therapy, right? So you do the cold shower and then you go into a hot sauna, cold hot, whatever, or you wake up. And I don't know what happened, but like all of a sudden my phone heard me talking about cold water shower therapy. And so now I get all these notifications about how beneficial it is. Did you know, honestly, it increases uh, the level of your endorphins and your metabolism and your hatred of cold showers by 95%. If you do cold shower therapy, it's, it's really quite amazing how that works. And we're sitting over there and we're, we're, we're watching and we're playing the game. She's watching Chris Hemsworth uh, or the show. It's not watching Chris Hemsworth. They're fine. They're doing fine as a marriage. But um, actually, I don't know. Maybe she's watching Chris Hemsworth. That could be true. Um, and uh, she says, hey, babe, you should, you should like look into this, Right. And, and he just smiles and laughs because it's my friend who like takes really like long showers. He always has since college, right? And, uh, and, and he, he looked at me and he said something to the effect of, it's always funny who recommends you should start cold shower therapy. It's always the person who shares a hot water tank with you that recommends this to you. Have you noticed that? It's like, hey, you should really look into this. You know what I mean? Because I'm sick of taking involuntary cold showers because of you. So that's, that could be it. Check it out. I don't know how it works, whatever. It's fine. But we do it for a time. We give it a go, right? We try something for a while. Uh, and then what happens is um, we start to feel better. We, uh, we sleep better. We wake up more refreshed. Our buckles fit better. Uh, if you're still, we stop wearing buckles because nobody does that anymore. We, we do all kinds of different things where we're like, this is great. And then what happens is, you know, we hit a goal, we, we, we do this, or the inconvenience of the activity is not outweighed by the benefits anymore. And so we fizzle and we do it. And maybe it was just a goal and that's fine. You're like, I'm gonna do this for a month, right? In dry January has the month in it and we know when it stops or whatever. So those things can kind of come and go and their seasonality. And there's some value to those things. It's great, but that's not really resolve, right? I want to I want to make sure that I want to address that because what I want to talk about is resolve, which is something more than that. Resolutions are a part of that. It's kind of deciding to do something, but there are conditions attached to it and they're temporal in nature typically. They're for a season of time whereas resolve feels like um a little bit different uh than that. Um and, and you should be able to do all of those things, but resolve is different um and and it's fine that people are doing those things, but uh, people who do cold showers permanently, like those, cre they're creepos, guys. You gotta watch out for them. Don't trust them with your kids or your car keys. So it's fine on, on, on thing, but this isn't a series on resolutions. Uh, discipline is important. It's not a series on trying harder for a season. That's too, uh, that's not to say the things don't have value, but I, I, and I'm doing some of the things that I just mentioned in there. Thanks for noticing. You know, it feels really good to have you notice. And in fact, it's funny when people go, uh, if, if you had, if you tried some of these things, these resolutions, and then you, you are feeling better, right? And you're doing things and people notice like, 
have you been sleeping better? Like there's less bags in your eye. Have you been, have you been working out? Cause like those clothes are fitting a little better. And before they can even finish the phrase, you'd be like, yeah, you know, it's just something that I'm doing, just something I'm trying out. And it feels so good, doesn't it? Feels so good for the moment. You cut them off and halfway through the question, just be like, yeah, thanks for, thanks for figuring that out and noticing. Could you let my wife know that you notice as well? Cause that would be important. She hasn't said anything about it lately. So um, it's key. For the next couple of weeks, I want to talk about resolve, which is like that, but a different. It's, it's, it's more. It's yes and to all of the things that I just mentioned with the resolutions. Have you ever met somebody with a really high level of resolve? Have you? Yeah, that guy has. Is that for sure? Just got a text from him. Um, have you ever met somebody with a really high level of resolve? They didn't stop or start something because it was the first of the year, because it was a calendar thing, because it was the cool thing to do, because they felt like they ought to, because they're in a group with, with people who are going around the circle sharing their news resolutions and they're like, I guess I got to start something. That's not resolve. That's just deciding. That's fine. But this, when it comes to somebody who has resolve, they didn't do it because it would look good on the gram. They didn't do it because their doctor told them they had to or else they were gonna die or, or have to start taking medications or have to have surgery. They just decided to do something. And you should, by the way, listen to your doctor, all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying that, but this is a decision that they just decided to make and they decided to go through with it and they didn't put a time frame on it and they, did, they decided to do it because they felt like I ought to do this. This is something that I ought to do. I am resolving to live differently in this way. They decided something and then they just simply stuck with it. And this is why we have a phrase that is associated with the word resolve. Um, when I say resolve, uh, you may have thought of it. It's, it's this idea of testing your resolve. Or, or that's when we think of the word resolve. We say, oh, that is a, a period of testing. Oh, you're trying to eat better. Let's test your resolve. Here's a plate of freshly baked brownies. How are you doing with your re- resolve in this way, right? We test our resolve in this. In, in other words, asking the question, how committed are you? Because there's nothing wrong with trying to eat better, get outside more, or watch less TV or whatever. But resolve feels a little different, like something new or above and beyond that. I'm going to try and attempt to define it for the sake of our series um, using kind of two things that you can kind of, um, I don't know, uh, draw from to kind of put some framework around this idea of resolve. Number one being a heightened level of commitment or effort that the word resolve kind of communicates that it's not just I'm going to try really hard, but like I'm going to have to say no to some things that I would normally say yes to. I'm going to have to change some things about my schedule in order to meet this resolve. If I'm going to have this kind of resolve, it's going to require a sacrifice of sorts. Or at, at, at one of its greatest degrees, it's going to require a redistribution of my finances. Because we've always said uh, from the beginning here, you give to things that you value you know, in, in life. If you value fast internet, you're going to pay more for internet. If you value driving a nice car, then that's what you're going to you know, invest your, your, your money into. If you value something enough, if you resolve it enough, there's a good chance it will impact your finances in some sort of a way. It's a heightened level of commitment that's going to require you to say yes to things you wouldn't normally say yes to and no to things you normally would say yes to. It asks more from us than just simply a sincere effort. There's an author, uh, his name is David Brooks. He writes as an op-ed guy for the New York Times. Um, and he wrote a book recently, came out a couple of years ago, but I'm just getting to it now, uh, called The Second Mountain. And the idea behind The Second Mountain is simply that we, our life exists on two, you know, we go through an experience of, of, of climbing up two different mountains. The first mountain re- represents all of the things that we thought was success back when we were in high school and college and perhaps early in our career. It's, it's, it's the one that's kind of measurable by acquisition of things, acquisition of titles, letters that come after our names, 
um, chasing after something that's gonna be, provide us with some value. It's gonna lead us to a level of independence, financial independence, uh, job independence. Nobody tells me what to do because now I'm the boss. Um, I don't have to go to work. I get to go to work. I get to choose when I work and where I work. Uh, independence in terms of I don't need people. I can facilitate this by myself. I'm smart enough to be able to manage this by myself. Or I have enough money in my bank account to be able to write a check to solve any problems that I have that I don't need to ask anybody for any help in any sort of way. That's kind of like this first mountain that he says. And we spend a lot of our life, sometimes our entire life, people go through their entire life chasing up the first mountain. And then sometimes he says, what happens are a couple of things. One, we can get to the top. We can look around and say, it's not exactly what I thought it was. It can be very unsatisfying. Typically this happens like later in our career, once we've achieved success, because for a long time, the ladder can kind of continue to go up. But eventually we get to the top of that and we look around and be like, is this all it is? Like, okay. And we see a different mountain, a second mountain in the distance or whatever. Or perhaps he says, a lot of times in life, we get knocked off of our first mountain. We're climbing this level of success and then tragedy strikes and it's the loss of a child, the loss of a marriage. It's, the, uh, 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 it's, it's something that shows up in our workplace, loss of a career, a decision, the consequences. It's an addiction issue. It's a, it's a something where all of a sudden everything that we thought was gonna be the pathway to success is no longer the pathway to success. And we get knocked off of our first mountain. And lucky for us, he says that there's a second mountain in which we can choose to go to. And that's not the opposite of everything that we chased on, chased that for our first mountain. It's not like we're anti-independence, you know, financial independence or, uh, or whatever. It's not like your job is a, now a bad thing and you should definitely spend more time not working. He's like, no, 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 it's just a new way of doing work. It's a new way of handling money. It's a new way of doing a marriage or, or raising kids or, or whatever. It's a second sort of mountain. One that is not as much focused on independence from people the goal is independence, I don't need people. But he says this idea of interdependence upon people, that I only exist safely and with security in the fact that I am, that my joy is contingent on the joy of other people as well, that I'm giving myself away in this, that I get pleasure in doing, uh, in, in doing work when other people around me are blessed by the work that I do, that I'm not trying to get to the top, stepping on the heads of everybody else to get there, I wanna work in a place where, or I wanna lead an organization where other people's success means my success as well. Or when I raise my family, it's not just, I'm just out for respect and whatever else. I'm trying to watch them grow and, and they're challenging me as I'm challenging them. I'm not just sitting in the role of the parent as the rule giver, but I'm growing with them. I'm learning about me as a parent as they learn about themselves. I'm not just watching them grow, they're watching me grow. Because of them, I'm growing with them. There's an interdependence associated with this idea of a second mountain. Then he writes this uh, to go on uh, as a quote. People on the first mountain have lives that are mobile and they're lightly attached. They're, they, they, they are only attached to the point that it benefits me to get uh, to where I need to go. People are seen as a resource or as a means to an end, an end of independence from them, or a job is seen as I'm gonna work here to make the money that I need to make so then, then I can go be happy somewhere else. So I'll put in the effort, even though I hate this job and it's not, I, I would never call it a vocation, but I'll do it because I have to, right? We're lightly attached to this. If the money goes away, if the job, if this goes away, if the relationship goes sour, if we no longer like each other, then, you know, if, as, as, when, as soon as it becomes inconvenient for me, I'm so lightly attached that it really doesn't matter that much. People on the second mountain are deeply rooted and deeply committed. The second mountain life is a committed sort of life. He goes on to say this, when I'm describing how Second Mountain people live, what I'm really describing is how these people made maximal commitments to others and how they live them out in fervent, all-in ways. That when I commit to something, 
I'm resolving to it. My yes is my yes is my yes. These people are not keeping their options open, living lives not keeping their options open. This is the uh, epitome of I'm putting the skin in the game of something. I have skin in this. If I lose this, it will hurt me. It's not, I'm not lightly attached to this. I'm living my life and committing to things with not keeping my options open. And then he concludes with this. He gives us examples, uh, four specific examples of where this could potentially show up. Uh, people on the second mountain have made strong commitments to one or all of these four things. And again, this is coming from somebody who himself talks through at the very beginning of this book, him going through this first mountain, achieving success, becoming all the things as an author and as an op-ed writer. You're working for the New York Times. I mean, that's kind of a pinnacle of journalism for a lot of people. It's a big job. And then he's realizing, I got there, I got here, and I'm realizing, looking back at the people that I know and the people that I respect, the people I saw with resolve, it showed up in one of these four areas, a vocation, a spouse and a family, a philosophy or faith, and a community. That the people that I respect most who had a level of resolve in their life that meant to them, that was challenging them, and I was inspired to, to live my life differently as a result of this, it became because of a level of resolve as in their vocation, the way that they did their work. It wasn't just a job. They weren't lightly attached. They sunk everything into this. They made it a part of them, not in like a lack of boundaries way, but in a way that was like, um, inspiring, and you wanted to work with them or for them, in their spouse, and their family, the way that they parented, and they, they said no to a lot of things that could have meant, you know, uh, uh, fun and independence for them and self-growth, and, and it was a lot of sacrifice, and it was a lot of other things, and, and, and because of, uh, of that, they lived with the resolve when it came to raising their family or their philosophy of faith or their community in this way. As a result, the second definition of uh, resolve, not only is it kind of a heightened level of effort and, and sacrifice, but there's also a worthiness or a weightiness to the resolve. That, that what deserves our resolve, the situation or the calling that deserves our resolve must be something that's of value. When you look at that previous list of vocation, the family, uh, a career, uh, uh, your faith, your level of you know, personal belief systems uh, in the community that you, you live in are all pretty significant worthy decisions. I'm not talking about, you know, I, I wanna be able to fit into a pair of jeans like I used to in college. I mean, that's fine. That's kind of a resolution area. That might not be a resolve. Now, living a healthy lifestyle that kind of puts me in a position to be, uh, to get the maximum amount of life and be able to be with my family as long as I can and, and uh, awareness in that way, that, that can be resolved. That can be there, but there's a weightiness. Again, thinking through some things. I want, us, I want us to think about areas of resolve that come to our life, but when we think about that, we have to filter it through the grid of, is this something that's worth, worth resolve in my life? And what kind of an action or what is going to be expected of me and able to be able to do this? A weightiness to this. Is it worth it? Is the sacrifice going to be worth it? Is the juice going to be worth the squeeze on that? I have a friend who... Uh, was pondering the divorce option, like many people coming out of COVID. I mean, we spent 18 months in the same house as somebody else. And you're going, I don't know that I like you. You know I mean? That's a hard thing for a lot of people. And so uh, it, was, it was one of those situations and, and he's calling me and, and we spent an hour or so on the phone. And afterwards, Kylie pulls me aside and what's going on? What's the, the, what's the, what's the thing? And so we begin to talk to her a little bit about it. And she goes, ah, oh, just call him up, have him come over, have him sit in our living room. We'll make dinner. He can come over for dinner. We'll talk about, because he may, he may be, you know, show that in spite of how it may look from the outside, it has not been all roses and rainbows for us, that it's been really, really hard. And the way that she said really, really hard kind of turned me off a little bit. I was like, I'm really hard. I mean, come on. 
not hard to live with. What are you talking about, right? But uh, the idea was trying to convince him this is worth the resolve. This is something that's worth, you know, fighting for. And, 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 and you know, trying to figure out, has he been down that point of resolve? Is that not reciprocated on the other side? There's all kinds of factors in that that can work themselves out. It's not like I believe that divorce is like the worst option ever. I just think that it's one of those things that I think a, a healthy marriage is deserving of a, a resolve piece. And, and, and I think that, you know, we're all, her concern was that there was some image management at play that, that sometimes I think people came through that season or season of divorce looking at their marriage, looking at other people's marriage and being like, they seem to have it all together. I don't seem to have this together. We don't seem to have this together. So therefore, I don't know if the juice is worth the squeeze on this. And failing sometimes to realize that we're all doing some sort of a projection of image management. And, and we do that through social media. We do that through life. She's like, bring him over. Let him know that that's, that, that not that, I don't want to say that we're, that we're creating a persona that people will buy in, although that's what you want, right? That's what we all need, that we all, we all want that. You want that, especially from somebody like me. You, you practice image management like I practice image management in terms of what we post on social media. But then also, as a church, you want a pastor with some level of image management. But what you don't want from me is me to come up here to be like, hey, we're going to start a series on marriage. And before we do that, I just want to take a moment and say thank you to my wife, Kylie, who just told me today, this morning, she's going to give me one last chance to kind of keep things together, baby. And I'm just so appreciative of that. You'd be like, what are you doing? I don't want that from you. What I need from you is things are great. Here's what you should do. If you want something like this, go this way. And so I get it. I understand. We're all practicing that image management, but it can then convince us maybe that, that um, it's really easy for everybody, that uh, what's required to fix their marriage was simply just resolution, to try harder, to bring home flowers more, or to speak more kind words, or um, take more vacations, or uh, you know, find somebody to watch the kids more date nights or whatever, and not really understand the resolve piece behind it that was behind a decision to be able to do that. And so um, for us, then what I would love for you over the next couple of weeks is we kind of digest this series and, and go through a series on resolve, uh, what would it mean or what, what, what in your life, in what area of your life do you need some resolve? In what area of your life, this time around the sun for us, if life is, yes, it's moving forward, always marching forward, but some, to some degree it's circular and we're going through this again. All right, this time we get another chance. Here's a big refresh. So this time around the sun, what area, in what area of your life do you need a little bit of resolve? In what area a means enough to you to make a heightened level of effort, sacrifice, and work? It needs to mean enough to you. Again, it's gonna take a heightened level of effort and it's gonna need to be worthy of this sort of effort. What falls into those categories of things? And then finally, what would that look like for you? For the next three weeks, that's what I wanna help walk all of us through as we do this. I wanna show you how it kind of shows up in scripture um, briefly. Um, there's a, uh, the guy named Paul who was responsible for writing a significant part of the New Testament. The New Testament's made up of 27 different books. Some of them are like historical books about the person and teaching of Jesus. Uh, others of them are, are letters. And uh, of the letters section, Paul is a significant contributor to that. Um, he writes about probably, give or take a few, but 13 or so books uh, that are that form part of that New Testament. A lot of them are letters to churches that he was a part of starting. The, the, the church kind of exploded after the crucifixion of Christ in Jerusalem uh, and then kind of began to kind of go out into the world. And uh, it took place in Israel, but also out into the Gentile world or the non-Jewish world uh, as it kind of made its way all the way even to Rome, the capital of the empire at that time. And Paul was responsible. He would take three different missionary journeys. He would go to a city. He would start a community of churches. He would leave. He would then write letters back and forth correspondence. 
Some of those letters were kept from those churches, passed on to other churches. This is what Paul said to us. It might be of value to you. Over time, those churches decided to keep those and kind of uh, canonize them or um, contain them for history, which is why that's what makes up our New Testament or part of our New Testament anyways. Uh, and so there's one letter specifically he writes to a church in Corinth. And uh, what you need to know about Corinth is um, it sits at the kind of the top, the top of, uh, of the little Greek kind of islands area up in, the, up in the north. And it would have been a crossroads of sorts from the Roman Empire out into kind of the expansive empire. Um, and as everything, if, if you begin to be a, a crossroads of commerce, um, there's a lot of money involved in that, a lot of influence, a lot of bribery, and a lot of things to kind of make things function. If you want to go here and you want to be a part of this, this is, you have to pay the tax bill to make this work. As such, Corinth was a relatively wealthy town. It was far enough away from the empire that some of the rules of the empire um, didn't quite apply there. So imagine a town uh, with lots of money and not a lot of rules, right? Like what happens there stays there, right? So you got this. It's the Vegas of the old ancient world. Uh, that's Corinth. He starts a church in Vegas uh, and then uh, leaves and begins to write letters back and forth with them. And so what we have are two of the letters. There's probably more, but we, the church decided not to keep all of them for whatever reason. So we have first and second Corinthians. In the very first letter, we get him kind of beginning to talk about, uh, he's going to insinuate that he had been there before, which we know, uh, and then his advice later on about here's, as an as a advisor to the church, here's what I would recommend doing, right? And, and here's the stories that I've been hearing from you uh, about you. Um, why would you allow this to happen in your church and, and figure these things out? So, but before we get to like advice and words of wisdom, he prefaces that with what we're gonna look at right now. So chapter one of the first letter to the Corinthians, verse 26 says this, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Now he's writing again to a town, a, a uh, what happens to your state here, sort of town with lots of wealth, um, probably not as much influence in, in terms of the world, but you know, it's kind of a renegade sort of town. So he's, he's looking at them going, you either uh, fall into that category or you've seen this kind of take place. This is characteristic of this town, but you, you've almost even felt like an outsider in this. You don't feel like you qualify. You're neither empire nor, Jeru nor in Jerusalem. So you're not at the height of kind of the epicenter of religiosity, nor are you at the height of empire. You're kind of like a mixed breed of sort. You're kind of like a, a middle, you're kind of like a nothing. You're, you're really just kind of existing in this way. Not many of a noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. But he's saying, in spite of that, in spite of you not feeling like you're really worthy of anything, these people probably felt like uh, if you've ever been in sort of a small group where everybody's going around sharing their testimony about where they came from, you're like, please don't talk to me. Or their disciplines for the new year. You're at work or something. Everybody's like, I'm doing this for New Year's. I'm doing this for New Year's. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm not doing anything, right? This is, this is he's, he's writing to them. And this, by the way, is, is why I remain employable as a pastor. This is the theme verse for me as a pastor. The foolish things of the world, shame the wise, right? This is, this is God. This is a reminder for me on a weekly basis. I don't have to have it all together. That God can use even idiots like me. So he's saying this. He's saying this to these people. He's writing this, prefacing with this with them, trying to let them know that what I'm about to tell you is relevant to you, even if you don't feel qualified to, to receive it which is brilliant for us because if you've ever felt like a sort of an outsider to religion, 
right? And we've tried to be position ourselves to be a church for outsiders. Or you're in, but like just barely. Like even like some of your family members who are actually religious are wondering if you're actually in, right? They're like, I don't know, maybe not. They, they go to that other church. But this is great. This is for you. This is for me as we kind of move forward with this. And then he goes on after this. Next, next, uh, next slide. There we go. Uh, verse, this is the next chapter, but the, the thought continues. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. He's saying this, when I showed up in person with you, I decided on a strategy of not coming in, impressing you with all of the different thoughts and here's this and I was an apostle and I, I met Jesus, there was a light and I got knocked off my donkey and I got, I got all kinds of different things and I'm really, really smart. Again, Paul's history is, as a Jewish person, when he writes later on to different letters, he would say, I was a Jew among Jews. I was, I was like the prodigy. I knew all the things. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I had the law memorized. I did this. I held the coats of people as they stoned Stephen, uh, the first Christian martyr. Like I was everything. I was qualified. I was the person who led the small group. And yet when I came to you, I chose the strategy that did not involve any of that. Now, later he would go on to write a letter to the Romans, which we have in our New Testament called the book of Romans. And in that, he has not been to Rome yet. And he takes a different strategy for the Romans. He does speak with authority. He does speak with human eloquence. He does speak with all kinds of different wisdom things. He's trying to impress upon them. You can trust me as an authority of the gospel because of this. So when it came to Rome, he had a different strategy. But for them, he goes, when I showed up, I didn't do any of those types of things. Instead, for I resolved, I made a decision, I made a commitment. I said no to that, even though I could have gone that route. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I resolved to say that the only thing that I cared about was the idea of the person of Jesus, the Christ, Jesus Christ being not Jesus's last name. Jesus' last name wasn't Christ. That was their way of saying Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Christos, Jesus the Messiah. Jesus as the Messiah and him crucified. I resolved that the only thing that I was gonna be like, this is what I know. I'm resolving, I'm saying no to this. I probably had advice for you on how to live. I saw what you were doing and I could have said, hey, knock it off. That's not you, come on, don't do that. I could have had, I could have spoken on, listen, I'm farther along in my belief systems. Here's what I know about God. I, I remained quiet. I held my tongue on all of that stuff. But what I did not hold my tongue on was the idea that I had been shaped by the person of Jesus as the Messiah, that I began to believe that this person who was Jesus, who walked and talked and, and lived in Nazareth and, and was born in Bethlehem and was known by people was actually the son of God that his presence was something significantly different than anything else that I can explain. And that his crucifixion presented a way of doing things in the world, that it represented something, that when God sent his son or when God showed up in the human flesh, he did not come in power. He did not come with authority. He did not come with miracles where every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. He came in a, as a child. And then he spent years in obscurity and then even when he came and healed people, it was always like not in the main towns. And it would always be when he was challenged, he did not lord his authority over anybody else. In fact, when he met with his disciples right before he got arrested and crucified, he washed their feet and told them to do the same things. And then when he, when he looked them in the eye, he would say things like this, by this, by your way of doing this, will people know that you are my disciples. Not by how much you know, 
not by how spiritual or religious you are, but by the way that you love one another, that will be the characteristic definition of what it means to follow in the way of Jesus. And then he subjected himself to, uh, to an unjust ar- arrest and he didn't you know, go the legal route of saying, you can't arrest me, you have nothing to charge me with. He just remained quiet when he's approaching, who are you? He didn't talk himself out of it. He didn't do anything. When, when, when Pilate tried to give him an out, when, tr- when Pilate stood in front of the people and said, I find no fault with this man, Jesus didn't harp on that and, and, and say, that's my out, that's my out. He suffered through this public humiliation of this. His entire life was about power under humility, constrained power. Even though he could, he chose not to. He chose the path of humility. He chose the path that said, I'm gonna hold my tongue. I'm gonna walk the Via Dolorosa. I'm gonna walk this path of public shame and public embarrassment, go through extreme and inordinate amounts of pain. And I'm gonna take what people would say, that is a failure. Anybody who dies on a cross is a failure. That was the Romans message to the world. If you choose to follow in the footsteps of this person, you're, that's a, you're a failure. They reserved it for people who were, who were treasonous, who, who were, were uh, uh, rebels of the empire, who this is the worst of the worst. If you choose to do this, just so you know, it ends in failure every single time. He chose that. He chose this way of sacrifice. He resolved in his mind. I resolved to, to, I saw it modeled for me through Christ and I resolved to lead with that. Now, now he's gonna go on and say, I'm, I have words for you of wisdom, but only because I've earned that right in that respect. Because when I first approached you the first time, I resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling, not in power, not in any of those things. I came to you in weakness and fear and great trembling. My message and my preaching were not wise, uh, with, and pers- with, not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. For him, he said matters. Uh, I, I've heard some things. He, he says, I've heard some things, but I'm gonna hold my tongue because I'm gonna earn that authority. He says, it's not worth the risk for you to not listen to me. I'm gonna do this. While we were still strangers and acquaintances, there was something worth more than impressing you with wisdom and eloquence. And that thing was Jesus Christ and him crucified. That Jesus and him crucified changed and changes everything. It became like a filter in my life in which I could get to see everything. It's like a, one of those sepia filters where everything's like a brownish light or whatever. It's like everything changed based on the way I saw because of what I, what I know about Jesus Christ and him, and him crucified, not circumcised, although probably too, Jewish, not relevant, sorry. Um, and th- this idea, like um, this idea of Paul resolving to do this as a pastor resonated with me personally as, as a pastor myself and trying to lead a church and trying to uh, I- engage with people who are on, on the spectrum of belief, of unbelief or, or lots of belief or some belief or whatever. Um, it, it became something for me. Like I, I wanna resolve, I wanna be a part of a church. I wanna be the type of person that resolves to live a life of humility and, and not try and impress you with human wisdom, but just to be like, man, Jesus Christ, I'm crucified, man. That's, I just can't shake it. I just, I, it shapes everything. And, and, and perhaps over time, I get the right and the, uh, the opportunity to speak to you about, hey, things, I heard something going on in your life that maybe there's, I think Jesus teaches a different way. That's a better way, a way that's more closely aligned with him and, and, and a way of self-sacrifice and interdependence and not independence and all that kind of stuff. But that comes later. That comes later. And for me, I'm looking at this and as I read this passage of Paul, I I recognize that for me, I wanna live a life 
And I, I hope that you do too. And I wanna be a part of a church that goes, listen, here's what we're about. Jesus Christ and him, uh, in, in, in him crucified. I almost did it again, good grief. Jesus Christ and him, uh, uh, I gotta stop. I just gotta move on. I gotta take a drink. That's what I gotta do. All right. So I gotta change the subject here. That doesn't happen by accident. That takes a type of commitment. That is a form and example of resolve in the life of Paul. So with that as a backdrop and with that of kind of a, a motivation feature for us, then the, I return to the questions that I, I want us to kind of process through for the next couple of weeks. In what area of your life do you need some resolve? Again, heightened level of effort, something that's worthy of doing this. What area means enough to you to make a heightened level of effort, sacrifice, or work? And what would that look like in your life? For three weeks, I want to kind of help walk you through that. I'm going to give you some options and some ideas, but I think you're pretty smart to be able to figure things out on your own too. Like, you know your situation in your life and your character makeup and your current relationship status and all that kind of stuff on your own way. But I want to help as much as I can. And I also, I want this to happen on a personal level, which is why we're going to make this part of the series. But I just want to make it clear to you as well. I think this pertains to as a corporate level as a church too. I'm processing through this in the life of Eastlake. What is this time around for us? What are areas in our life that need a little bit of resolve? And we've practiced this before. Um, typically, this first message of the year has been something like that. Here's um, a few years ago, we made the decision. We said, we looked at kind of our year-end numbers and we said, um, you know, it's been a while since we've really focused on on water baptism. So this year, we're going to make a focus. We're going to try and resolve to be better at presenting opportunities, talking through the importance and the reason why people do water baptism, that it's a public standpoint. Like you can decide in your mind that I'm going to do following the way in the footsteps of Jesus, but like actually doing something publicly instead of like, I don't want you to like wear a shirt or a bumper sticker or, or like post something on social media, be like, I am now Christian, right? Like that's fine, whatever. But from from a scriptural standpoint, one of those spots is getting up in front of people and, and uh, going through the, the sacrament of water baptism in front of your friends and your family and your church community. And so um, we said, we're gonna make this a priority, even though, even though, listen, for us, we don't have a, like a tank that's built, right? That is just, every week we have to pull that thing out of the basement, not every week. When we do baptisms, we have to pull that thing out of the basement. It's a horse trough, that's what it is. We fill it up with water, then we have to heat it and it takes like two or three days to heat. Then after it's done, we have to drain it all out. It's a really difficult process for us. It was gonna cost us man hours and all kinds of stuff. And we just decided one year, we're gonna make that a priority. We're gonna talk about it more. We're gonna highlight it more. And we had, because we, we did that, we had, I don't know, 20 something baptisms that year, which is awesome. It was, it was, it was really, really fantastic and great. Um, and it just showed for me, okay, every year at the beginning, I try and, and take that week between Christmas and New Year's when we typically don't have service and think about what is going to be our resolve for this year. So uh, I'm going to introduce it to you for, uh, for 2023. Now, if Eastlake's not home for you, this is just, you're kicking the tires, you're here by accident, uh, New Year's resolution, you're just trying things out or whatever. Great. That's awesome. You get to like, you know, you're, you're probably done. You can take what I've talked about and do what, you're, do, do what you want with it. This next part doesn't um, mean anything uh, to you necessarily. But if Eastlake's home for you, this is what we're going to be focusing on for 2023, right? This idea of this, matters of resolve for Eastlake. I want to be a community that helps the people who call Eastlake home find their people, grow spiritually, and make a difference. I want you to find your people. I want you to grow spiritually and I want you to make a difference. Finding your people can look like a lot of different things. We'll, we'll talk about it in a, a little bit next week. It doesn't necessarily mean get everybody in a group. I, I, that doesn't, that, I just mean you have people in your life that see the actual authentic you that you don't have to do manage image management as much or at all. Something that, that is real, transparent, authentic, right? Growing spiritually, that doesn't mean you know all the answers to the book. When I say, you know, this 
chapter verse, you have an answer for direct. That's not it. It's not answering a quiz. It's something different. We'll talk about that in two weeks. And then making a difference. I want us to be a community and I want you to be a person individually who makes it a result and makes it a decision. This is worth it for me in my life to be able to make a difference. I want to do something where if people, if we, if I wasn't in the community, if I wasn't at this workplace, people would take notice. We get a lot of, um, not a lot, we get some letters, notes, cards, uh, connect cards, uh, whatever. We'll get some, some things. And my favorite ones are always the ones that come from organizations outside of our community who recognize what either we're doing as a church or what you individually are doing and you are wearing love in, in different organizations. And, and they know, they associate us with you or, or maybe we're the ones that sent them your name or whatever. And so they send us a, a little note in the thing. And, and a lot of them are, 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 are non-religious. They're just um, either individuals or corporations that, are, that aren't church. They're not Christian. They're not coming at it from a thanks for, you know, whatever. They're, but they're like, thanks for making a difference in our community. They, they write these things. We're so thankful. This is from, my favorite ones are the ones that, are, that come, non-Christian audience. There's no religious motivation whatsoever. We're so thankful to have you in our community. Guys, those notes get penned up in my bulletin board or taped in my office because I love those ones. Now, some of you leave little comments about great talk today, super funny, really relevant, great. I love those too. I read them and then I throw them away. I don't save those ones. I'm just being honest with you. Thank you for them. Keep them coming, all that stuff. But the ones that get saved are the ones that from the outside of things, people are going, we notice how Eastlake has chosen to make a difference in the community. And we would be bummed if it wasn't a part of the community moving forward. That's awesome. So yeah, exactly. That's how I feel. So I want all of us together as a church, our direction is finding our people, growing spiritually and making a difference. And then for you, figuring out what resolve, what area of resolve needs to look like for you. Hopefully you'll be back for the next couple of weeks as we digest this together. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that you would help us identify what that looks like for us on our own personal individual level, that as we think about this creatively, uh, we can uh, begin to kind of filter this through the circumstances of our life that we find ourselves in. Uh, help us to uh, figure out what that would look like for us. Give us the wisdom to navigate that and the courage to do something about it in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri Cities in your favorite app store.